You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. I don't know if you're the kind of person that you watch the weather religiously every morning, but I'm not. Uh, I typically find out what the weather is going to be like that day when I walk out the front door. You know, um, if I know the forecast for the next couple of days, it's because you told it to me in the foyer. That's typically where I get my weather forecast is from you meteorologists um, in the foyer. Like, man, it's going to get cold in a couple of days. I'm like, oh, is it? Okay, thanks. Good to know. Uh, I don't really pay attention to that. Um, so I'm kind, of, I'm kind of clueless, if you will, when it comes to what the weather is going to do. But if, it wa- if I walk outside and it's cold, I'll go back inside and I'll put on a coat. I'm a little bit better, I think, than some people because I, I drive into town on my way to church early in the morning and I pass kids standing at the bus stop and they apparently don't know what the weather is right now <laughs> because they're standing outside without a coat on and it's freezing. And I've been driving in my car and it's still freezing in the car. Like, yeah, the heat hasn't caught up yet. Um, and so while I might not know what the weather's going to be in three days and I might not pay real close attention, I know what the weather is now. I can sense what it is right now. And I'm sure that for those high school students or middle school students, it's like, I'm not wearing that coat my mom bought me. I don't like that thing or whatever. It's not cold. I'm tough enough, that kind of thing. But I don't understand when, when someone can be in the cold and not know what the weather is going to be. And that same kind of, how do you not see what's going on, is, is the spirit. And what, when Jesus says the opening words that he uses in Matthew 16, we're going to read verses 1 to 4. Because the religious leaders and the lawyers come to Jesus looking for a sign. And he's saying, how, how can you not see what's going on? Matthew 16, verse 1 says, The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting him, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said unto them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites! You can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Jesus says, listen, you're looking for a sign. You want me to do some miracle or put some writing in the sky, but you can't notice what's going on right now. And then he uses this this phrase that was pretty common. He says, you know that when the sky is lowering, when it's red in the evening, that the next day is going to be fair weather. And that in the morning when the sky is red, you know that the day is going to be bad. He says, you figured out how to forecast the weather. Now, they they didn't have any of the instruments that we have. But this saying... Red sky at night, sailors delight, or shepherds delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherds warning, or sailors warning. It was pretty common. It's actually in a Shakespeare play, too. Because they, they had kind of figured out that when the sky is red in the evening, it's a good indication that it's going to be nice the next day. Now, that kind of sounds like an old wives' tale, right? Kind of sounds like something that somebody at Circle S would tell you, you know, kind of like when they're like, weather's going to turn bad, my knee's swelling up, I can feel it, you know. <laughs> 
But there's actually a little bit of science behind that red sky in the evening because as the sun is setting and it's pointing through, it's, the light is coming through particles, moisture particles in the sky, it's a good indication that the high pressure system is moving out. When it's in the morning as the sun is rising, it's a good indication that it's, it's moving in, the storm's moving in. So there's a little bit of science behind that. They didn't know that. They didn't know about water molecules or dust particles or high-pressure systems. But they had been able to figure out, by observation, when these things happen, it means that most likely this will happen. And Jesus says, you've been able to discern the weather close enough to figure out when it's going to be bad weather or good weather. But you've not looked closely enough at the signs of the times to figure out what is happening right now. And what was happening, there were all of these prophecies that were being fulfilled, and Jesus was fulfilling all of them. He was showing them all these signs. He was accomplishing miracles and doing incredible things. There were all of these signs, and they were like, we need a little bit more of a sign. And Jesus' response to them might give us an indication to the response that God gives us today when we're like, God, I just need you to show me a sign. And God says, look around. Look around you. Don't you see? Don't you see everything? Now, in our world right now, when we look around, we might not be noticing so much the red sky, but we can sense that things are not as they ought to be. No matter whatever your political stripe is, no matter matter your religious system, your belief system, no matter your mindset or your worldview, everyone will agree on this. Things aren't like they ought to be. And we all disagree about how we can get to where they need to be and what needs to change, but we all agree that things aren't as they ought to be. That life is a struggle. That the path feels hard. That it seems like life is just one thing after another. How many of you have said that, right? We can't catch a break. It's just one thing after another. It seems like things go from bad to worse to worst. Right? I'm I'm guilty of saying this is the worst and then proving myself wrong because then later it's like, no, this is the worst. And the truth is that, that God has ordained that things not be perfect, at least not in this setting, because the nature of this life causes us to look upward. The fact that we look around and everything is broken, the fact that we look around and life is always a struggle, it's toil, it's difficulty, it forces us to look upward. And this is not an accident. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has set eternity in our hearts, that there is this kind of this gaping hole that cannot be filled with anything that is temporal. It can only be filled with things that are eternal, that we will spend our whole lives trying to search out what it is that God is doing, and it won't make sense to us. Paul told the Romans, he says, all of creation groans. The whole world groans looking for the appearing, the redemption. And not only they, but ourselves also. We groan in our spirit, longing for redemption, longing for rescue, longing for restoration. There is a cry deep within our hearts and souls that only God can meet. Only He can reach out to. And the world is built that way because without it, Without the toil, without the struggle, we wouldn't recognize our need for God. 
And we don't like to hear that because it's painful. And we're all familiar with pain, right? I mean, since the time that we were children, we figured out that things hurt. That when we fall, we stub our toe, we put our hand on something hot, that, that hurts. And we don't like pain, but pain is a gift. Because pain helps us see that something is harmful. I know that we would all like for God to remove the struggle, for Him to remove the pain, for Him to remove the grief, but without the struggle, we would not realize our need for God. How many of you, you met God right in the midst of your struggle? right in the midst of your heartache, right in the middle of your pain, that is where God came close or you opened your heart to Him and you experienced God's work in your life. And if it wasn't for that pain, if it wasn't for that struggle, if it wasn't for that hardship, you would have never recognized your need for God. Those of you that are parents or grandparents, you know that you don't like for your kids to struggle, right? Don't like to see them in pain. Many of our kids have been sick over these last several weeks. But it would be tragic if our kids were sick and they showed no symptoms. We didn't know anything was wrong. In fact, those are the most horrendous conditions that a child can have when they have a cancer that's eating away on the inside and it's not showing any signs on the outside that's something wrong. And then finally, there's some symptom, there's some indication that something is wrong. And now it's too late. And it would be tragic if we went through life and everything was peaches and cream. Everything was wonderful. There was no hardship. There was no struggle. There was no toil. Everything was just easy. And then we get to heaven and recognize that we needed God and we didn't know it. And so this world is constantly showing us the signs of the times, the weather, the forecast, the, the feel of the air right now is such that we know that there is something that is missing that is not right. And I love this C.S. Lewis quote. I find, if I find in myself no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation as I was made for another world. C.S. Lewis knows that that thing in our heart that is searching, that only God can satisfy it. And it points us to the fact that there must be something else out there. This can't be it. There must be another sigh. There must be more. On the same side of this coin, we also want God to remove evil. Because a lot of the suffering in the world comes at the hands of evil people, evil choices. The truth of the matter is that if God removed the evil, where does He stop? Does He remove us? Because we are evil. And every day that God holds back from removing the evil and suffering in the world is another day that He gives us grace. We want God to remove the evil and the struggle, but if He did that, He'd be removing us. But fortunately, we've bought into this idea or this mindset that we can live life without any hardship. That we can live life without any sorrow. It's just not accurate. Apparently, Peter had a little bit of this mindset in him because later in this chapter, Jesus drives it out of him. 
This chapter, Matthew 16, is the place where Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, some, of you, some people say that you're a prophet, some say that you're Elijah, some think that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter steps up and he says, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. Jesus says, Peter, that's exactly right. And upon this bedrock of truth, I will build my church. But then right after this, Jesus begins to show them that he will suffer many things. So look at verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Peter doesn't like what he hears, so the next verse says that Peter took him. It's almost like Peter took Jesus aside, like Jesus has been having this conversation with everyone, and Peter doesn't want to correct Jesus in front of everyone. That would be rude. And so he takes Jesus off to the side to kind of give him some instructions, some pointers. Jesus, let me correct your theology here a little bit. And he says to him, begin to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Why is Peter saying that? Peter's saying that because his theology, his belief, his thought is that Jesus is the Son of God. Nobody can tell him what to do. If there's anyone in this world who's going to win, it's Jesus. And Peter has kind of hitched his wagon up to Jesus' horse because he's choosing to be on the winning side. But now Jesus is talking about suffering and death. And that's what Peter's been trying to avoid. And sometimes we think, well... Yeah, this world is suffering, but once I come to Jesus, everything's going to be great. And that's what Peter had done. He's on Jesus' side. All we do is win on Jesus' side. I mean, that's what Pastor Daniel talked about a couple weeks ago, right? We're on Jesus' team. We're on the winning team. All we do is win. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. These things aren't going to happen to you, not you. Those things happen to other people, but not us. We're the winners here. We've got favor. It's not going to happen to us. And how, how does Jesus respond to Peter? But he, said, he turned and he said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense or a stumbling block. You're in the way of what it is that I came here to do. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. What does he say to him? He says, you want the things that men want, and that's comfort and ease, and everything is fine. There are no obstacles. There's no hardship. There's no toil. We've made it. This is the life. And Jesus says, that's, that's not... The, the will of God, Peter. You're standing in the way of the will of God. You've pulled me aside and tried to give me a talking to. I'm on my way to the cross. This is the Father's will for me, and you're trying to block that. Get out of my way. You are an offense. You are a stumbling block. You are a barrier to my mission, and you savor or desire the things of men rather than the things of God. The idea 
that we can go through life without any suffering is satanic. That's what, that's what Jesus says to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And the idea that if we come to Jesus, everything will be fine is a lie that is perpetuated by evil because it appeals to our desires. And we don't come to Jesus for Jesus' sake. We come to Jesus because He can give us what we want. And then what happens is we come to Jesus and then the next day our tires flat. And we're like, I thought Jesus was supposed to help me out. Or the economy goes in the tank and we lose our job. Or our pension takes a tumble. Or we get sick. Jesus, where are you at? And Satan wants to slip in in that moment and see, like, he, God doesn't care for you. He's not there for you. He's forgotten about you. And if you've put your faith in Jesus and you're going through hard time, do not believe the lie that he's forgotten about you. Jesus was on his way to accomplish the mission that God had given him. And that was going to go right through the greatest toil and struggle and adversity. So the idea that there will be no suffering, that's satanic. Now look what Jesus says after that. Verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus is talking about the cross. He's talking about them taking up the cross. Peter's having this conversation with him because Jesus has said he has to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the chief priests, be sacrificed, and raise again the third day. It is a satanic idea for us to think that we can go through this life without suffering. That's a satanic idea, but it's grace that Jesus took the suffering on himself on the cross. He faced the suffering for us. For that reason, Scripture can tell us that we have a high priest who is not unfeeling or unfamiliar with what we face, but rather he has been tried and tempted. He has faced adversity himself. And the invitation he gives us is to join him. And so when Christ calls us to follow us, he calls us into a fight. He doesn't mislead us. He doesn't pull a bait and switch. He doesn't Tell us everything's going to be wonderful, and then we get into it and it's awful. No, he, he is very upfront about the fact that to follow him is to leave our life behind, to lose our life, and to take up the cross. And when we hear the cross, we think, oh yeah, the, you know, the decoration that we have in church, or you know, the thing that we wear around our necks, or maybe we put on our car if we're brave and we're going to act right in traffic. You know, we, it's the symbol it's a religious symbol. But to Peter and the other disciples, it wasn't a religious symbol. It wasn't a banner of, I'm on team Jesus. It was, it was an instrument of torture and death. And as the Roman military made their way across the regions, and they wanted to demonstrate in a gruesome and public way that they were the winners and that everyone else had lost, they used the cross to kill all of their enemies. It was a very public way of dying. They knew that. And so when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up a cross, 
Everybody knew what he was talking about. If you've ever used the, the phrase, boy, he's on the warpath. Man, careful, mom's on the warpath today. That phrase comes from when the Native Americans would go to fight another tribe or they would go to fight pioneers or settlers. They would mount up and they would take a path that was for warriors. It was the warrior's path. And so everybody knew they're headed to battle. That's not the hunting path. That's the war path. And pioneers and settlers actually on their maps, they knew that there were certain places that when they came into that area, they had to be extremely cautious because Indians would cross there on their war path. Or they would refer to tribes who are regularly on the war path. They're always on the war path because when they went on that path, it was clear. They're going to fight. It's a battle. And when God calls us to come and follow Him, it's not misleading. He says, take up your cross, this instrument of death used by their enemies. He's calling us to follow him on a war path. It's not a leisurely stroll. It's a war path. And so this life is a fight. Following Jesus is a fight. But here's the good news. Because while we do have an enemy, and it is a fight, and it is a war, the enemy, he's a loser. He's a loser. Because what is it that Jesus says to Peter in that passage about building his church? He says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, this bedrock truth that I am the Son of God, I will build my church. What's the next line? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have an enemy, but he's a loser. And we have a Savior, and he's already won. When he went to the cross, he took the suffering and the shame. He took our sin. He took that for us, and he won. He sealed the fight against Satan. And he's able to say that when you walk this path, yes, it'll be a fight, but... The church that I'm building out of those who follow me, it will never lose. Not even against the very gates of hell. And so why is this path so hard? Because if we're without Jesus, this world is, is designed. God in His grace has allowed it to be so that it points us to Him. Why is this path so hard? Because if we are followers of Christ, we have an enemy who seeks to work us woe but that enemy will lose. Last week I shared with you that beginning of World War II before the United States had jumped in that the British and French soldiers had retreated and they were trapped there at Dunkirk and through the use of several hundred, nearly 700 little ships that people took, their yachts, their fishing boats, they were able to rescue hundreds of thousands of soldiers from those shores. As those soldiers returned home, the people in Britain thought, if we could not stop the Germans in France, how can we stop them when they come to Britain? And leaders of the British people felt that they needed to get into talks with Hitler once again to try to figure out some type of peace treaty, some type of surrender. Otherwise, they were going to lose everything. 
They felt like their enemy was too powerful, had just overpowered them. And it was in this moment that Winston Churchill came to power and he delivered this powerful address. He said, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance. He's speaking of those troops being delivered from Dunkirk, a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations, but there was a victory inside this deliverance, which should be noted. He says, I have in myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, if the best arrangements are made, we shall prove ourselves once again able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny. Remember, he's speaking to people who were considering, should we surrender, should we give up, should we give in to the Germans? He says, we will outlive the menace of tyranny if necessary for years, if necessary alone. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We will fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if for a moment, I do not believe this, but even if this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seams, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle. Until in God's good time, the new world with all of its power and might might step forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. And the people in the House of Commons cheered. And there was this moment of a turning of the tide. God had rescued their soldiers, and they believed that though the odds were stacked against them, though their enemy was powerful, that they could win, they would not surrender. And i got to tell you that I needed, this, I needed to prepare this sermon this week because... There have been some great losses. There have been some setbacks. been some frustrations. And I needed to be reminded that God will build His church and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against her. And that if God has called us to a mission, it is one that He will empower us in. And so if I may, I want to borrow Winston Churchill's speech and put it into our context. I have myself full confidence that if all answer the call, if we all follow Jesus, grow in groups and serve on teams, we shall prove Christ able to build His church and find that the very gates of hell cannot prevail against her. If necessary for years, if necessary alone, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in Chandler and Boonville and Evansville. We shall fight in the schools and in the jail. We shall fight with growing presence and growing influence online. We shall reach our community whatever the cost may be. We shall reach out in the streets. We'll reach out at the parades. We'll reach out to the hurting. We'll reach out to the broken. We shall never quit. And even if even if, which I for a moment I do not believe, but even if this church were subjugated and closed, then God's kingdom and His little ships throughout our community would carry on the struggle. Until in God's good time, 
Christ, with all of His power and might, steps forth on the clouds to call us all home. We have an enemy, but he's already lost. We have a Savior, and he's already won. We continue in the struggle, in the fight. This battle goes on. We are on a path of war. This is a war path. But the victory is ours. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.